listening to Nightcaller's Bigfoot Radio. Good evening and welcome to Nightcaller's Bigfoot Radio. You're here with your hostess, Lauren Smith. And tonight we're going to be chatting with Mr. Ken Gerhard, who is a cryptozoologist, author, speaker, and so much more. But before we get to it, I'd like to ask you guys a favor and have you show some love for my hardworking Nightcaller's team by hitting that thumbs up on whatever platform you're using to listen to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and ring that notification bell for updates on new shows and content. You can find NCBR on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, or any podcast app of your choosing. All right, so now we are going to get to our guest. How are you doing tonight, Ken? Hi, Lauren. <laughs> Hi. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here with you. Oh, I'm the one who's honored. Thank you so much for coming on. I cannot wait to talk to you. You are a busy, busy man. Betty, better busy than bored is kind of my motto, you know, but boredom scares me more than anything else. But you're right. Sometimes I feel like I overwhelm myself. Like many people, you take on too much. It's hard to say no to things and (laughs) you find yourself, how am I going to get all this done? But um, I feel very blessed. I love what I do and um, I get to meet a lot of really cool and interesting people like you and talk about some others, I'm sure. Oh yeah. Oh, I mean, it was so great to meet you. I can't believe that out of all the conferences I've been to, Jefferson was actually the first time I got to meet you in person. So that was really great. I couldn't remember if that was the first time. I mean, I knew we, you know, we had, I've done other shows that you were involved with yes. and um, we probably chatted, but yeah, mm-hmm. I, that, that was cool seeing you at the conference. Definitely. Definitely. And that was a good conference. Um, despite COVID, mm-hmm. I think, you know, he pulled it off really well. Oh, so it was every really time. Great. Yeah. Wool we'll heater pulls it off. He's been doing it for two decades <laughs> yes. and uh, he's a master of, of putting the, that well, all events, but that conference together is it's always a winner. I had him on uh, the week before the conference, actually, and he was chatting with me before the show. And, you know, I said, you know, is COVID putting a crimp in your style, you know, with putting on this event? And so he actually told me a really fascinating story about how he put the conference on during 9-11. And there were travel restrictions and, you know, airplanes. First year. Yeah. And there were all these travel restrictions and he couldn't get the guests on the plane to, you know, or the speakers on the plane to the event. Um, and so I said this, so this really isn't your first, you know, hurdle that you've had to jump. And he was like, no, not at all. So, you know, shout out to him for putting that on and and just doing a great job with it. Definitely. So, so you're, like I said, a busy guy and I would list all of your shows and books and works, but that would take up the entire hour. So, (laughs) um, I mean, you're just, you're so busy, but you guys, if you guys want to, um, go look for yourself. You can go to KenGerhard.com and he actually lists all the, all of his works. Um, there's links to go purchase his books. He has a lot of great books. Um, he's been in a lot of shows and, uh, magazines and publications. And so you can go check that out, um, you know, on his website. And then he's also on Facebook and Instagram, Twitter, mm-hmm. um, you know, all the YouTube, YouTube, all the sites. I have a YouTube channel too. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so I read that you were actually born, and I'm sorry that I'm, I'm, I'm dating you on this, but you were born <laughs> one week before the Patty film was shot on Friday the 13th, no less. Yeah, that's, that's true. Friday the 13th of October, 1967. That's okay. You can date me one week <laughs> before the Patterson Gimlin film was shot. And I remember the first time I ever you know, people, of course, always ask me, how did you get into this? Well, I was about eight or nine years old when I saw my first Bigfoot show on television. And, uh, you know, this is like in 76. And um, of course, they showed a clip from the Patterson Gimlin film. And when the narrator said it was filmed on October 20th, 1967, I felt kind of a weird connection to it because right. it was so close to my birthday. Like, wow, maybe, you know, yeah. So, this is my destiny or something. Yeah. So after that, <laughs> you were just into all the weird, right? Well, I was already into monsters. You know, I grew up on Godzilla movies and sci-fi and all that. And um, my dad was a forestry professor and we spent a lot of time in the outdoors and I had a lot of exotic pets. My first pet was like a caiman, which is a small alligator. And then I had snakes and salamanders. I liked all kinds of creatures and monsters and animals. 
And so when I found out about Bigfoot and cryptozoology, it was like a perfect synthesis of all those different influences, you know, so. That's awesome. That's awesome. I didn't know that your dad was um, that type of professor. So that's really cool. Yeah, he actually, a lot of people, this is an interesting piece of trivia. He was on the staff when he first started at the University of Minnesota, which is where I lived when I was real little. Um, he was on the staff with a guy named Dr. Grover Krantz, mm -hmm. who was uh, the anthropologist. And uh, he was actually, he got his PhD at the University of Minnesota around the same time my dad started there. So he never, my, I asked my dad, did you ever meet this? And, you know, different departments. Yeah. So no, he never met Krantz. But uh, Krantz always reminded me of someone that my dad would have worked with when I remember all my dad's professor friends think about the seventies and the professors at university, they've all got like long sideburns <laughs> yeah. and gla weird glasses yeah. and they're all like yeah. real smart, you know, flannel, right. flannel shirts and stuff. So. Oh, that's, yeah, that's pretty awesome. That is a good little piece of trivia. You know, I'm going to quiz everybody tomorrow on, on <laughs> Facebook about that and see if they were paying attention. Um, so, so you got into this, uh, based on, you know, your birthday and the show, um, so kind of how did you launch your career that you're doing now into this? Well, I certainly never planned to do this as a career, but um, what I always tell people is we talked about my dad, but my mom was really a huge influence on me and uh, she passed away when I was young, but before she did, she was uh, very adventurous uh, and she was a travel agent, loved to travel. So we, uh, we went on some pretty amazing vacations. I traveled around the world with her. Uh, we camped along the Amazon River with, you know, the Havaro Indians and the Yaguas and the, you know, very primitive and mm -hmm. uh, went Galapagos Islands, hiked the Australian outback. I climbed Mount, uh, climbed Ayers Rock and uh, Africa. So wherever we traveled, I was already like researching whatever legendary creatures or beasts were in that particular culture because oh, wherever awesome. you go in the world you have a different uh some of them are similar but different yeah. types of legendary beasts and things but one of the seminal events in my life was when i was 15 years old my mom arranged for me to and my father to go fishing at loch ness so my dad was an avid fisherman and mm -hmm. of course we both enjoyed it but we did some fishing but i spent most of my time as you can imagine i had a movie can an eight millimeter movie camera <laughs> and i was walking around the lake trying to, you know, hoping I'd get, see something. And I interviewed a lot of the people in the village. And so that was kind of like my first attempt to like try to find answers. Like, wow, let me see. But I, you know, again, it wasn't like, this is what I'm going to do. It was just kind of like, wow, I'm really interested in Nessie and the Loch Ness Monster and I'm here and this is so amazing. So that was kind of how that kind of, you know, it, it sparked an interest in me to, to do research. But then years and years later in my, not to get into a whole thing here, but I was a musician for a number of years and I did a whole music career and that was fun, but I kind of got burned out on that. And um, then I started, uh, this is about the time the internet was springing up. I was able to meet other Bigfoot researchers in Texas, which was like really cool. And I met guys like Craig. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, yeah. So, um, so you do a lot of great things. Um, you know, you've, you're obviously you're writing all your books, you're, um, filming on different TV shows. And so the thing that I love about what you do is that it's educational. So you are, you know, educating the masses on everything that you do. That to me is, you know, the most vital thing, the most vital part of what you do is you go, because, you know, I, I do know a lot of, um, a lot of, of speakers and a lot of presenters who do this, but they don't really get out in the field, but you do. Um, you research these topics, you research, you know, the cryptids that you're going to be looking at and you get out in the field, which I think is amazing. Well, I appreciate your kind words. Um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, I, I'm more of a cryptozoologist uh, probably than a Bigfoot investigator, which means that, you know, I investigate, of course, Bigfoot is a passion, but, you know, I do investigate things like the Loch Ness Monster and Thunderbirds and Black Panthers and Mothman and, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm I, the Tasmanian tiger. So I'm fascinated in all of these potential unknown animals. So that that helps me because I like the diversity of the field and, and learning a lot of it. But, um, you know, as a cryptozoologist, 
I feel like I'm an ambassador to the field and I try to represent it as much in a scientific light as possible. So, you know, the thing about that I tell people about cryptozoology is don't forget the zoology part. That's mm -hmm. important. Yes. And so, you know, a lot of my heroes are guys like Dr. Grover Krantz and Roy Mackle and Bernard Hoovelmans and Binder Nagel and Meldrum and people that, that came from a traditional science background, but, you know, and they, they came into the field and they brought all of that with them. And I think that's important for people to maintain, you know, particularly when we're dealing with things as remarkable as, as Bigfoot or Sasquatch, we have to, I think, my opinion is that we have to maintain a scientific yes. methodology and perspective. Mm -hmm. It's all about accuracy of information. It's about strength of evidence yes. and being objective and not becoming emotionally attached to what you want to be yes. and just kind of look at the evidence. And part of that is obviously debunking hoaxes. And sometimes people do have misidentifications of things and, you know, you try to clear. So you have mm -hmm. to kind of sweep all of that out of there so that you're looking at the purest evidence, you know, what is the most valuable stuff. And um, yeah, so I, you know, I, I try as much as possible to espouse that sort of philosophy. And um, I'm honored that, you know, that I get to work with a lot of amazing investigators all over the country and the world and um you know all of them are my heroes so right absolutely um so i think you know i think you're absolutely correct um in in phrasing it that way um there's just there's a lot of times that you know someone finds potential evidence and they are so excited about it that they really don't want to hear you know so you know like in my group in the night colors you know facebook group i try to tell people you know um, you can tell people that what they have is not Bigfoot without tearing them apart. So tell mm. them, okay, you know, yes, but I've yeah. seen this and you know, the, like I, I saw somebody had posted a piece of fruit or something with a bite out of it. And I said, okay, you know, but the, the mandible size, sorry, that's my dogs. Um, the mandible size was far too small for it to mm. be, you know, anything significant. So, I mean, I, I think that you should educate people um, instead of, you know, tearing people apart for their beliefs. But I think, yeah, it is important to be, you know, I always try to be diplomatic for, with people and I don't certainly don't want to be a, a dream crusher, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, this is just my opinion, but, uh, you know, based on my decades of intensive research, I'm convinced that Bigfoot, if it exists, is incredibly rare. It's mm -hmm. a very, very rare animal, possibly sadly teetering on extinction or at least mm -hmm. endangered. And so, when you consider that compared to, you know, tens of hundreds of thousands of bears and other animals that, that inhabit the woods that, you know, whenever you find evidence of anything, like you said, droppings or bite marks or whatever bones, you always have to consider first, okay, well this, what can I eliminate? What known animals might this be associated with right. these hairs or whatever, you know, what can I rule out before I immediately jump on? This is Bigfoot. Mm -hmm. Um, but, and again, not to, you know, criticize anyone, but, you know, I, I correspond with a lot of investigators of all different skill levels all over the country. And some of them, they, you know, and I understand they're, they're, you know, they're, they're dedicated to finding something and, uh, you know, nobody wants to go out in the woods for days, hours, weeks, whatever, and say, oh, nothing happened. But, yeah. um, you know, and so some of it is interesting. Um, but I do find myself in that uncomfortable position a lot, Lauren, where people are sending me things and I just yeah. have to say, yeah. you know, I, I, you just can't just, we just can't assume it's Bigfoot. Right. You know, you have to consider what else this could be. So right. I tell, I tell a lot of people, you know, um, if I do share something, it's very rare that I get excited about a photo or audio or anything anymore. So if I do share that with somebody, I have a friend who's a, a very big skeptic. Um, this person really wants Bigfoot to be real, but they are skeptical about everything I've ever showed them. And so if I show this person evidence, um, they're just always like, you know, what about this? And I said, okay, here's the thing about, um, Bigfoot researchers that you have to understand and probably all cryptid researchers, but I will say a good chunk of Bigfoot researchers, we are the biggest skeptics you will ever meet. A good Bigfoot researcher will 
literally eliminate every single possible thing it could be before saying that it's possibly Bigfoot. You know, a good Bigfoot researcher. Now the ones that are like every single thing is Bigfoot, you know, that's that's not really research. That's wishful thinking. But Yeah, well, everyone's entitled to to have their own opinion and perspective and um you know, I do get frustrated like you know, many Bigfoot researchers that, you know, people that hoax or the, you know, the people that kind of make us look the rest of us that are interested in, because we're already, like you said, I mean, we're already, I mean, um, I write about this in my book, The Essential Guide to Bigfoot, but only about 18% of the population, one in five people thinks that Bigfoot could actually exist. Mm -hmm. Four out of five people think it's pretty loony, you know? (laughs) Um, But um, so, you know, those of us that, that, are trying to argue the supposition that they do exist. We, you know, we have this duty, this obligation, I think to be as credible and convincing as possible. And so you do have, but, but because it's such a a fascinating and um, you know, it's a topic that touches everybody on a number of levels. Mm -hmm. You have all, all these different fringes of Bigfoot and then you have, obviously, and I won't say anything disparaging about them right now because I've, I've written about that, but, you know, as far as the, so you have the people that are way out there, you know, right. I mean, I, I'm living with, I've lived with a family of Bigfoots and you know what, maybe they did. I mean, I can't say definitively that they didn't, but you know, the more far out and sensational that someone's experiences are that those are their experiences. And again, you can't question them because they're theirs, but you know, if you look at it scientifically, it's highly improbable that that actually happened. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't, usually it just doesn't make sense. But, you know, th- those are the kinds of issues we deal with, right? In the Bigfoot field, Lauren, or, you know, you have all these, these extremes of the, right. the believers and the skeptics and the scientists and mm-hmm. everyone kind of approaches it a different way. Definitely. And we have, you know, we have knowers, experiencers, believers. Yeah. I mean, there's there's all these new genres of Bigfoot mm, researcher habitu- out there. Habituators. Yeah. Yes. There's gifters. I mean, there's just it's it's crazy the amount of <laughs> names that have happened within the last 10 years, probably. that are all these subgroups of Bigfoot researchers. Subcultures. Um, yeah. Yes. But, you know, um, I, I will say that. Oh, my gosh. Um whenever we talked about, you know, uh, one in five people, I just, I'm curious to know how that number has changed since finding Bigfoot came out and all the Bigfoot shows and, and that it's a little bit less taboo. I think, you know, it's interesting you brought that up. Um, I found two recent surveys where they polled a general population about Mm -hmm. whether they think Bigfoot could exist. And the surveys, one was 18% of people and one was 22%, which falls within a pretty decent margin. I recently was reading an old book from the seventies where they had done a similar survey back then. And at one point it was only 13%. Um, And, you know, you think about particularly the late seventies, I mean, there was a lot going on in the Bigfoot field back then. There were a lot of sightings in newspapers and, Mm -hmm. you know, the, movies and pop culture but it seems like it has gone up a little bit um you know there you also can't discount the possibility that some people that took the survey were still just embarrassed to admit even if it was an anonymous survey maybe they just felt uncomfortable admitting that they thought it could exist so maybe they they fudged on that but um (laughs) you know i think people are generally becoming more open-minded because you know we've we've reached a, a kind of a, a period in time where I think we've, we've come to a realization, I should say that, you know, there are things being discovered and, and mm-hmm. science books being rewritten and things as new discoveries are, are made and, and old theories are overturned. And so, you know, I, th- I think most people at least are open-minded enough to acknowledge, okay, well, maybe we don't know everything. So right. who knows? It's possible. Yes. Yeah. I, I would hope that people would be more open-minded about stuff. You know, there are new species discovered every day. And yes, it's it's hard to believe that something that big and that important could be in the woods and you haven't seen it, but... That's the paradox. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's frustrating. So on that note, have you ever had a sighting or experiences? I've had... Exp- well, I've heard vocalizations, I'm mm-hmm. convinced. And what I always tell people is that I'm 90% convinced that Bigfoot exists after right. all these years because I've never seen one with my own eyes and I want to leave that 10%, you know, to, right. 
to see one with my own eyes. But I've heard vocalizations and uh, in Texas, Louisiana, mostly. And um, my most remarkable encounter, uh, which I write about in my book, happened in 2003. Uh, this was up in uh, Cottonwood Lake, Texas, which is near Decatur, about 50 miles north of uh, Lake Worth. And uh, I was with Chester Moore at the time and two other investigators. And we were at this remote lake and uh, camping out. We'd heard there had been sightings in the area recently. And uh, just after the sun went down, we heard these, we were hiking around the lake and I had a little video camera going at the time. And we heard these vocalizations and I'd heard the whooping sounds. I'd heard some like, you know, other tree knocks and, you know, a few other things that were, might be associated with Bigfoot, but they were always kind of distant and, and so forth. But this was very close. It was like within 40 yards, I would estimate whatever was making these sounds was in heavy brush. So we couldn't see it, but it sounded, and I record, I've got a recording of these sounds, but it sounded just like an ape. It was a very deep kind of grunting, mm -hmm. uh, very powerful, low frequency, really like almost seemed to like vibrate through the, through the brush, mm -hmm. but it sounded to me like a primate. And I've, I've heard a lot of primates in the wild in South and Central America, holler monkeys and things. And so I, you know, th that's what it struck me as. And right. um, we couldn't see it. We thought about trying to flush it out, but we only had one gun between the four of us. And we were, <laughs> you know, we, we this brought, yeah, this is like, you know, had to get down on your hands and knees to crawl into this thing. And we're like, oh man, this is crazy. So mm -hmm. we went up to a higher vantage point overlooking the lake where there was a levee and we had a spotlight and we shone that down shone the light down where we had just heard these noises and we did see some eye shine mm -hmm. about yellowish green eye shine, but we couldn't really see how high it was or what, it, you know, whatever. But um, so then we set up camp and the next morning we finally made our way through the brush where we'd heard this thing, you know, daylight brings courage. Right. Yeah. And um, we hadn't heard any of these. I should say, I also heard some moaning sounds that night. <laughs> I had a, I had a megaphone and I would do like calls. I'm not very good at Bigfoot calls, but right. some, something would answer me back with a really eerie moan That's creepy. across the lake. Yeah, it was creepy. And, um, but anyways, we, uh, when we made our way through the brush, it was a beach and uh, there were footprints, human, human like footprints that were very deep, okay. not real big, but, fairly big, mm -hmm. and, uh, very deep. And there were uh, several turtle shells that had been ripped in half, like clean, clean in half okay. and kind of thrown into a, a pile. And there was no meat or anything left. It was just the shells. And these were like, you know, like, you know, red-eared sliders and map mm -hmm. turtles. They were big shells, like about that big. Right. And I mean, you can see how something had just ripped them from top to bottom. And I was like, man, that's you know, I couldn't think of any. So anyways, that was all of that to me. And you, you know, have to keep it all in perspective that there were several things that happened in that area. Right. Um, and there have been subsequent sightings in Cotwin Lake. Actually, my encounter inspired a group of uh, Bigfoot researchers from North Texas and Oklahoma. And I, and I want to, I can't remember their name off the top of my head, but I want to commend these guys because they they've sent me reports and they're the way that they're logging their investigations is mm -hmm. very impressive. It's like, this is what we, you know, so right. note to Bigfoot researchers out there, you know, take a lot of notes, yes, write a journal or whatever and mm -hmm. kind of, but anyways, so there have been other sightings at that place, Cottonwood Lake. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't been there myself in years, but. You it know, sounds, that's... it sounds like a pretty good uh, evening that you had there. And, and, you know, sometimes, you know, I have people ask me after I have, you know, an outing, they're like, so did you find Bigfoot? And I'm like, well, I'm like, it's not necessarily like a sighting that, you know, is exciting. It's the sum of all the things that happened. You know, it's, it's like, okay, if you get a howl, you see a track, you know, but sometimes it's the sum of all of those things that it's like, yeah, we had possible activity. You yeah. Know? Yeah. It's corroboration. Right. So you're right. You're, you nailed it. Um, if there's, you know, one footprint or one sound, but if you get different pieces of evidence that kind of form a pattern together, mm -hmm. and particularly when you have other investigators, and I forgot to mention this earlier, but another, uh, I think, tenant of good field research is peer review and yes. having other colleagues that you can bounce yeah. things off of and say, what do you think? And, you know, mm -hmm. what is your, 
how are you interpreting what's going on right now as opposed yes, to what, yes, what I'm experiencing? And yes. Um, and even when you find evidence in the field, whether they're footprints or hairs or whatever, and mm-hmm. turn them over to someone else that you trust and, you know, and don't even lead them and say, oh, this is what I think this is. And, you know, just say, what do you think this is? Absolutely. Take this. Get tell a fresh me what, perspective. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, th- those are, that's another sign that that's a scientific methodology that's, uh, that I encourage more Bigfoot researchers to embrace is, Absolutely. you know, don't be afraid to have other people judge your evidence and don't feel bad if they come back and say, yes. well, I'm not as convinced as you are because that's part right. of the process. Right. I think, you know, holding each other accountable, but again, like in a way that's not tearing each other down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, we, can be civ- yeah. we can be civil. Sure. Um, so I wanted to ask, so in one of your presentations, you had mentioned that you believe that the population of the, of Bigfoot, um, or that, you know, species or whatever in the U S is around 2000 individuals. Um, can you tell me 4,000? Oh, 4,000. I'm so sorry. Well, that's Um, okay. Can you tell me how you arrived at that number and, and why you believe that there are so few and that they, uh, may be going extinct? I guess the number is why, but. Well, it's all just speculation, of mm-hmm. course, right, Lauren? I mean, that's all, all we <laughs> yeah. do in this field is we speculate. But I think there are different levels of speculation. And the more information you have and the more time you spend kind of analyzing that information, the, the better you can speculate. Well, the reason that I came to 4,000 as a best guess is that um, first, again, Dr. Grover Krantz, who is a very brilliant physical anthropologist, a little bit kooky and a little bit gullible at times, but generally a pretty smart guy. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how he reached this particular decision, but if you look at a lot of his other research on the Patterson-Gimlin film and Bigfoot prints and things, he obviously spent a lot of time developing formulas and ways to scientifically evaluate all these things. And in terms of population, he mentioned in his book that he felt that there were about 4,000 Bigfoots or Sasquatches in North America. He said, if, they, if there were any more than 4,000, I think they'd be seen more often. And if it was less than that, they would probably go extinct mm-hmm. because you have to have certainly, and again, a zoological, we have a zoological problem here, but you have to have a certain amount of genetic diversity and stuff to have a healthy population of any species. So, um, and, you know, think about this is spread out, you know, so I mean, 4,000 sounds like it might sound like a lot to some people, but if you think about how big and vast the, the forests and wildernesses of uh, North America are. So he came up with 4,000. So I put that in my back pocket. And then when I was, uh, I was speaking at an event last year with uh, Dr. Jeff Meldrum, we were riding in the car together, of course, talking Bigfoot the whole way for an hour or two. And <laughs> right. I said, uh, Jeff, how many, what is your take on population? How many do you think there are? And he's like, well, I've been giving it a lot of thought. Meldrum's a, a, a discipline of Krantz, right? That's mm-hmm. his protege. So it's <laughs> cool yes. talking to him. I've been giving it a lot of thought. And Jeff's reasoning was that he knew, and he's, of course, one of the foremost experts on Bigfoot prints, along with Cliff Berrickman and, and a couple others. But right. he had found a footprint that he could identify belonging to a specific Sasquatch. He believed to be a male Sasquatch in two different locations at different time periods. And those two locations were about 50 or 60 miles apart. And he recognized the morphology of these feet as being identical, belonging to the same individual. Mm -hmm. So he said, well, I know that they, you know, based on this 50 to 60 miles apart, I think that they would have a, roaming range of about a thousand square miles that presumably the males and again it's all speculation but if the males roam around and this is you can find other examples like in the orangutan world family and other you know that great apes will have particularly the males will have a certain area that they they that's their their range territory right territory there you go thanks for <laughs> you're welcome okay so about a thousand square miles so he said using that equation I estimate that there's about 70 Sasquatches in Idaho, my home state. That's where he's from. About 70 probably in the state of Idaho, which has a lot of forest. Well, I thought about that. And then when I 
got home from that trip, I found out how much, I figured out how much wilderness area was all over North America, Canada, United States, mm -hmm. you know, just wilderness area, forests and woods and, and stuff. And um, I used his number of 70 for Idaho and I multiplied it and extrapolated it and it, it came out to, to 4,000. Okay. Which I thought was like, okay, well, that's, you know, Kranz had his way, but this is, so basically what you have is two independent methods of mm -hmm. trying to come, come up with an equation or, or a theory. And they, you know, they match. I mean, right. someone else might come up with another one and maybe it wouldn't be so much. But anyways, yeah. that's why I think about 4,000. Now, it might be less than that. Maybe it's a couple thousand. Um, I know uh, at least one Bigfoot investigator lately that, Floored me. Well, no, it's 10,000. I thought, oh, that's, that seems kind of high. But anyways, yes, yeah. um, so again, going back to what Krantz said originally, I think if there were more than that, they would be seen more often and we would have conclusive evidence by now. So I think they are very rare. Mm -hmm. um, but I think if you have a few thousand individuals spread across North America mm -hmm. uh, in small numbers, then that does at least leave enough genetic diversity and, and population viability to sustain. Now, Presumably, the number was great, much greater in the past, like all animals. Right. Uh, there are a number of animal species that are teetering on, particularly large animals that are sadly teetering on the edge of extinction now because Absolutely. of, you know, humans. Deforestation. And and deforestation. Population and of... booms with the humans, as usual. Yeah. And, <laughs> Suburbs and, <you> know, everywhere. <laughs> yes. And just, and, and just long-term climate change, like looking Absolutely. at... Um, you know, you have the megafauna animals of the Pleistocene epoch, which ended about 10,000 years ago. And a lot of those animals were, you know, those animals like the bears and moose and mm -hmm. large, large megafauna animals of North America. That was kind of their time period, tens of, you know, tens or thousands of years ago. So they're right. kind of, you know, we're going to a transition now where maybe smaller animals will take over, I think. Things like raccoons and coyotes and things that take over the world. <laughs> but anyways, sorry, I know that was a, a kind of a rambling explanation. No, that was a that was a very good explanation. You know, I had somebody ask me that had been to your presentation in oh gosh. I can't remember where he saw your presentation and he, he asked me to ask that question for him. Um, and I think your explanation, it makes a lot of sense and it, it holds water. You know, it's it's a valid explanation. So I appreciate you putting that much effort into it for me. Well, um, for that reason, and again, just to tie that up real quick, mm -hmm. because I always try to teach younger and, or, you know, investigators that are right. kind of coming to the scene. I'm very skeptical when I meet someone that tells me, oh, I've, I've got an area and there's 12 Bigfoots. I got a family of eight or 12 in this mm -hmm. area. And I'm thinking, yeah. <laughs> you know, just, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that's possible because they're very rare. They probably have small numbers and well, I mean, who knows? we don't of, know, but on top of being very rare, they're, you know, very large. And so if you think about the amount of <clears throat> um, food and water that it takes to sustain a body as big as just one of them, um, it would it would lend credence to the theory that there are less of them because they have to take in so much nutritional value. Yeah. So they, you know, they sure. could probably eat an entire deer and that's lunch. You know, I'm just speculating, you know, just being no, sarcastic. This, you but, make a great point. But the, the population of wildlife has to sustain a group. And maybe in McCurtain County or LaFleur County where, you know, wildlife is plentiful plentiful as well as wilderness maybe there are bigger tribes or whatever you want to call them there but you know in some places where these people are saying they have a group of eight to ten I'm just like um I'm not even sure I could survive out on your property <laughs> if I had to go to ground much less you know an 800 pound being that eats a lot more than I do you know no it's um, you make a strong case and again it's a logical question but another way to look at it is they're being outcompeted by an animal that fills a similar niche. And by that, I mean bears. Mm -hmm. I think Bigfoot, and again, the evidence to Bigfoot or Sasquatch points to it being a generalist omnivore. Basically, mm -hmm. it eats everything, right? right. Meat, nuts, grass, mm -hmm. insect, whatever, it, you know, like you said, it's a big animal. It has a high metabolic rate. It needs a lot of calories. Bears are the same way. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I think you could make an argument because there, there do seem to be Bigfoots and bears in a lot of the same mm -hmm. habitats, but... You know, this, this is how 
evolution and adaptation works that bears maybe came on the scene and the populations of Bigfoots are going down because the bears are out competing them, you know, eating their food and and kind of taking over those areas. And also, like you said, just the, the development deforestation and the development of all of the, you know, all of the habitat that shrunk in North America since humans arrived here. So. Absolutely. Um, So I did have another question um, about the size um, so, you know, in that same presentation, I believe that you said um, that you don't believe that they're over eight foot tall. Um, I know that there have been other reports that they are taller. And so I was just wondering, you know, kind of how you arrived at that belief. And I don't want you oh, to the, feel attacked. I just wanted to. No, discuss. it's okay. <laughs> the, the, um, no, this is, this is, um, these are the kinds of things that I think need to be discussed. Absolutely. Okay. So there were two independent studies done on you know, Bigfoot sightings, Mm -hmm. right? Some of our best evidence is the number. We have several thousand Bigfoot sightings that have been documented now through the years. Both of these studies were pretty old, but back in the 1970s, John Green, the great John Green, who was one of the first people to collect all the sightings and put them into a computer, he came up with a, and again, this is all based on eyewitness guesses, and we have to acknowledge that people are some people are very bad at guessing height and size mm-hmm. and, you know, particularly when you're scared and your adrenaline's pumping. Right. If I saw a Bigfoot, I don't know, you know how I'd react. <laughs> yeah. But based on like 1300 of the best sightings that he put in his computer, he analyzed the estimates of height and the average height for a Bigfoot was estimated to be about seven and a half feet. And then uh, years later, a research biologist named Henner Farnbach who was in Oregon in the nineties, he took, he did a similar independent study also based on sightings into a database. And he borrowed some of John Green's data, but his finding I think was seven foot 10. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's the average height that's estimated. Now we know that in the hominid world, humans, great apes were sexually dimorphic. So the males are generally at least 15% larger than the females. And that goes across all of the great apes and humans, sometimes much bigger. Like in the gorilla world, the males are several times bigger, (laughs) twice as big as the females. But anyways, um, so, so if, if seven and a half feet say is the average, Mm -hmm. then you have to allow for the males being larger than that. And the females being an equal percentage smaller than that or shorter than that. And guess what? Patty, right, Mm -hmm. from the Patterson-Gimlin film, and there's, again, there's a lot of different opinions about how tall Patty is, but based on studies that have been done on the the film and different, by different people, seven foot three, and some people think maybe a little shorter, six and a half to seven foot three, and Mm -hmm. she's a female, right? Probably an adult female. Right. And then, so the male would be at the higher end of that, and so I would think eight feet, and this also ties into the footprints that have been found. And, you know, if you look at the, the measurements, the average Bigfoot footprint is 15 and a half inches long, 7.6 inches wide. Mm-hmm. Um, so if that's an average, then a smaller footprint for a female would be about 14 inches, which is exactly what the footprints that Patty left at the Buff Bluff Creek film site are. Mm-hmm. And then the largest credible footprints that I've seen, and I have a small collection, not as good as some, but <laughs> the, the largest big footprints I've seen that are credible are about 18 inches. Yes. And going back to Dr. Grover Krantz, he had worked out a formula and I forget the ratio, but it's like 6.0 something in terms of the general foot length of a Sasquatch compared to its height. And this is again, based on the Patterson Gimlin film. And so nice. there, there's an equation, but and granted, you know, everyone's feet are a little bit bigger or smaller, you know, right. you have individuals, but so these are generalizations, but if you had an 18 inch footprint, that would equal out to about a nine foot, I, you know, I think they could get to be as tall as maybe nine feet on a very large, tall male with a huge, enormous foot. Right. But I'm skeptical, personally skeptical of any sightings of Bigfoot or estimates of Bigfoot being over nine feet. Mm-hmm. 10, 12, 15. And I'm also skeptical of any footprints that have been found that are over 20 inches, you know, 19, 20 inches long, because then you're talking about 10, 12 foot Sasquatches running around out there. And I just don't think that's feasible. 
it's it's mind-boggling. You know, it's it's very hard to wrap your mind around <clears throat> something being that big. Um, for sure. Well, what's the but, be- what's the benefit, Lauren? You have to look at right. adaptation. Right. Sometimes size is an advantage for for a particular species, mm-hmm. but there's always a threshold where suddenly so the size becomes a hindrance. Mm-hmm. And you know what what right. is the advantage to a Bigfoot being say twelve feet tall over eight feet tall? Right. I mean, it's probably going to hit its head on the branches more and <laughs> has a, a harder time getting down low. I don't yeah, know. Harder to but, hide. Um, you harder know, to hide. You know, if we go with that reasoning, you know, like an elephant or, you know, a giraffe, but they are also in the savanna and they use their size not to hide. Yeah. It's you wide know? open, right? Savannah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and they don't really hide. They, although elephants are known to be pretty sneaky little things or big things, but, um, <laughs> you know, they don't really hide. They use their size to intimidate or for adaptation. Um, so, you know, I appreciate your answer very much on that. Yeah, uh, that said, um, you do have exceptional cases of individuals like, you know, there's something called gigantism within every species where you occasionally have that genetic, mm-hmm. you know, where the, the thyroid is super active, the growth right. hormone or whatever, and you might yeah. have one individual that's super, super big. So, right. you know, yeah, that, that would be incredibly rare. And if you're talking about an animal that, that's only 4,000 strong in population, mm-hmm. You know, but everybody wants to have the 12 foot Bigfoot on their property. I don't. I personally do not. I would be fine (laughs) with with an eight foot. You know, that's that's still huge to me. You know, whenever you whenever somebody says that, I always look at my ceiling and I'm just like, if I was standing next to that in the woods and I saw that. Yeah, it's big enough. I'm good. I'm good with an eight foot being the cap. But I do appreciate you answering from a scientific, um, you know. For sure. And Lauren, you've stood next to, I've, uh, I've been lucky in my life. I've met a couple of pro basketball players, <laughs> yeah. Carl Malone and Akeem Olajuwon. And mm-hmm. when you're standing next to someone that's over seven feet tall, I mean, you can't judge how tall they are. I mean, to right. me, it's like they, they could have been eight or nine feet tall. I felt so tiny standing next yes, to them. So yes. who knows? Yeah. I'm friends with some, some people who are, um, I, I tell them that they're part squatch. So, you know, Stephen Hill, um, Keith Crabtree who played the, the big foot yeah. in legend of Boggy Creek. And these, big guy. these men yeah. are, they're, they're huge. They're just massive. And I stand next to them and I feel just tiny and, um, they're only about six, five. So yeah, I don't really want to run anything into anything bigger than them. I always feel like, because I've been doing this for about 20 years and, I haven't had a sighting either. And I always tell my mom because I'll get so disgruntled about it. And I'm just like, you know, I feel like a dog chasing a car. What am I going to do with it when I catch it? What What do I think I'm going to do with it when I have a sighting? I'm going to be happy about that? Probably not. I'm probably going to have an accident in my pants and then have to do the walk <laughs> of shame all the way back to the car. <laughs> but, um, I mean, it's just mind boggling to do, to think of anything eight foot much less over that. So, yeah. And my point being, if you saw something that was eight feet tall, Mm -hmm. like a Bigfoot that was eight feet tall walking toward you in the woods, it would be very easy in your mind to conflate that or exaggerate that to 10 feet and say, Oh, this thing was 10 feet tall. So I'm sure that that happens too, where people overestimate because they're so scared and freaked out and, or misremember sometimes, you know, or something like that. Sure. Um, okay, so we have about 10 minutes left, and I have a few questions from people in the chat that hung on through the whole, you know, issue oh, cool. glitch. Um, so McKenna, McKenna, she wants to know, do you think they hibernate? Um, that's a good question. Um, there do seem to be less sightings during the winter, but mm-hmm. the uh, suggestion that's always come up for that is, well, there are less people that are out in the woods in the winter too, you know, uh, particularly in a lot of these areas in the mountains and things. Um, I, I think it would benefit them certainly to lower their activity level during the winter because there's not as much food available. And so, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, we have to acknowledge that bears are not true hibernators. They go into a state called topor where they're basically just lowering their metabolism and not eating as much and not very active. So right. I, th- I think it's reasonable to speculate that Bigfoot would take a similar course of action if there wasn't a readily food available. And, you know, this would mainly be in areas like the mountains of, you know, the Pacific Northwest and stuff, right. but for te- as far as Texas Bigfoot and Florida, skunk ape they they might not have that problem because they they may not have less so they would adapt to that but uh yeah it's reasonable uh i I think they might do that in some areas for sure um i know that 
you know, in my experience during the fall and spring is when they're most active, um, when there are more sightings and uh, more activity. And that would make sense as to when they were stocking up or coming out of, uh, you know, hibernation or sub hibernation and, you know, refueling basically. And there's also, yeah, absolutely. And there's also a theory that, you know, and this is again, far out speculation, but maybe they hunt meat in the fall and then they bury it under the snow and the ice Mm -hmm. so that it's preserved, you know, so that they come back and have a snack here and there. Maybe so. I'm, (laughs) I'm very sorry for the Oklahoma Bigfoot that do that because global warming is, uh, we have, you know, I, in the past couple of years, been known to wear shorts on Christmas. Um, yeah. So that I, you know, I just hope that they don't do that here. But uh, maybe, you know, in um, colder climes, maybe that would be something that they would do. Um, have little yeah. caches of, you know, yeah, like little caches of food that they deer. can store. <laughs> Other animals would do that during the winter. So, right. yeah, I think that they might hibernate during the winter or, you know, at least again. Some of chill. Them. Yeah, maybe. Yes. <laughs> chill. Um, chill. Pun intended. Um, so Mopar Bill wants to know, Ken, do you know of populations in the canyons of Arizona, New Mexico, and the panhandle of Texas? Wow. Well, um, I have a few sightings from the panhandle. Um, New Mexico, I haven't looked into as much, or Arizona. But if he's talking about desert Bigfoot, I'm presuming, because a lot of those areas are very semi-arid habitats. Yes. We're not talking about the Mogollon monster, right? We're not talking about the mountains, right, no. <laughs> but, but the, the desert valleys. Um, I think Bigfoot is probably nomadic. And that was something that I didn't talk about earlier. But when we were talking about populations and stuff, they, they, roam, they roam around probably in search of food. And so they might periodically find themselves in places like in desert valleys. But I, you know, I would assume that they're much more sparse there because there isn't as much food. It's more of a challenge to, and there's not as much, co- you know, there aren't as many places to hide. Right. Caves much wilderness. Canyons so I, I think they're probably, they do occasionally, I think there are transient individuals that so. move through those areas from time to time, but I don't think that you would find a colony or a, or a group of Bigfoots or Sasquatches in any mm-hmm. of those habitats as a general rule. Good answer. Um, So this next question is from Bob Dominguez of Bigfoot Club, and this is something that I wanted to ask you about as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is a three-part question. So Bob wants to know, what are your theories on Dogman? Do you think some of the sightings of Dogman are misidentified for Bigfoot? And my own question, have you ever been given um, any... Um, evidence of Dogman that really made you believe that this is real? Um, yeah, Dogman is an interesting uh, cryptid, um, kind of a new arrival on the scene. Yeah, and terrifying. Um, first of all, I have to kind of, uh, it's a great question, but, and of course people ask me that a lot, but all cryptids, Bigfoot included, are ultimately, in my opinion, the result of composite identity. Mm-hmm. That means what we we tend to do is there are different things that are being kind of lumped together and called one thing. So for example, in terms of Bigfoot or Sasquatch, I think there is an undiscovered hominid running around North America in small numbers, but I think there are also misidentifications of bears. I think there are also people that are hoaxing. I think there are also people that are delusional or having kind of wild fantasies. And I think all of that is being called Bigfoot. Similarly with Dogman, I think there, some of those, alleged sightings of Dogman could be misidentifications of Bigfoots or Sasquatches. I think Mm -hmm. that's a possibility. Again, particularly if someone's having a fleeting, you know, it's a fleeting sighting, it's at night, your adrenaline's pumping. Sometimes your mind might fill in the blanks. Um, There are old stories of Bigfoot you hear about where people called them werewolves because maybe the name Bigfoot or the idea of Bigfoot was not as prevalent yet in culture. And so people say, I saw this big hairy monster on two legs, so it's a werewolf, you know. Um, but in 2016, I organized, uh, a conference called the Dogman symposium. We had it up in defiance, Ohio, we had about 165 people that showed up from all over the place. But, um, we had, uh, you know, I had a number of the top Dogman researchers there, Linda Godfrey, Stan Gordon, um, David Weatherly, Nick Redfern, myself, and, um, <laughs> John Tenney. And we, we basically, we all had kind of different perspective that we brought to the table, but we, we kind of 
all, I think we all agreed when we did like a panel at the end, we kind of all agreed that Dogman doesn't seem to be a real flesh and blood animal. It doesn't have, even though it does seem to have a physical presence, people see it, they smell it, they, it scratches their car, it chases them. But, it, you know, first of all, you have to acknowledge that it doesn't fit into the paradigm of the fossil record at all. I mean, right. there's just nothing that looks like a dog man, nor could there be evolutionarily speaking. Um, so, and I know they're going, Oh, so, you know, they wolves have evolved to walk in their hind legs. It, again, that just, right. to me, that doesn't make sense. I mean, look at how small a dog's feet are and it's hips are, right. you know, it's not designed to walk on two legs. Even a you're looking at, foot, you're looking yeah. at 50 million years of evolution there that designed them anyway. Anyways, <laughs> I, uh, I digress. <laughs> yeah. um, but there are all these other elements of dogman phenomenon, people that have them, uh, the behavior is hyper aggressive compared to Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. You know, Bigfoot isn't always chasing and attacking people. That's a lot of that is built up, I think, into a, a Bigfoot seems to be a very retreating, shy thing. Mm-hmm. Um, dogman is always trying to scare people and chase people and terrorize people. That's unnatural. It's behavior, right? And then also people describe like weird green mists that appear and, you know, spectral things and, electronic you know, problems. electronic problems and then attachments afterwards, you know, there's a poltergeist in their house or there's weird noises or they're mm-hmm. having psychic visions or so <laughs> this isn't really my area of expertise, but mm-hmm. I do have many good friends and colleagues that are involved in paranormal research. And so I think, Dogman seems to be something more supernatural or metaphysical in nature. And again, that does, it does have a physical presence, mm-hmm. but, and this is all pretty cosmic stuff, but if you're open-minded enough to think that there are mechanisms in our universe that we just don't understand that are not wholly physical, right. things that manifest and take form and different things and interact with humans for whatever reason. Right. So that's what I think Dogman is more supernatural. As far as evidence, I haven't really seen anything convincing. None of the footage or f- mm-hmm. films are very convincing. I have interviewed a few dogman eyewitnesses that are extremely convincing. Uh, the most recently was a guy named Steve Kruger, who's been featured on Monster Quest and a lot of other TV shows. But he was picking up dead deer off the road in Wisconsin back in 2006 one night, and something reached into the back of his pickup truck and dragged the deer carcass out. And he looked oh in his gosh. rearview mirror and he said it was giant and hairy with broad shoulders, but it definitely had a wolf-like head and huh. uh, was not a Bigfoot and it was not a bear. And I, I interviewed him about two months ago in Wisconsin and right. he was pretty, I mean, his story was, you know, pretty convincing. And uh, this is a guy that works with wildlife on a regular basis. He's hunted bears <clears throat> and moreover, and to his credit, right after his sighting, what do you think he did? He went to the police Mm-hmm. And he went and he logged a report with the sheriff's office and yeah. he got into a lot of, he got a lot of flack for that. It was in oh, the newspapers sure. and he, he didn't want all that publicity at first. Right. So to me, those are some of the more credible sightings if people are willing to, it's one thing, Lauren, to go onto an anonymous website and I'm, I'm going to, my name is John and mm-hmm. I saw this, but to go and log a police report Right. And contact law enforcement. I mean, that's a legal, right. that's legal jeopardy, right? You can't yes. lie to the police. You can't make up a story. So I don't know. But right. uh, so I've heard some good credible sightings from him and yes. a few other yeah. people. <clears throat> but um, I have I don't, as well. I, um, yeah. You know, the ones that I've heard, most of the ones that I've heard from people that I know and trust, um, they believe they're very ambivalent on whether they think it's an actual dog man. Most of them that they just lean towards um, that it could be a possible snouted Bigfoot, like a species of Bigfoot that has a protrusion um, mm-hmm. and maybe had tufts of hair instead of ears or, you know, something yeah. like that. So um, whenever someone says dog man, you know, because I'm just not a fan of werewolves. I mean, werewolves in the, the movie Werewolf in London scarred me for life. I will never be the same. And ever since then, I don't want anything to do with dog man or werewolves or anything. So I'm just going to go with it. It's a snouted Bigfoot and we'll just leave it at there. Nobody does. And, but one last thing, and I'll give you a few extra minutes since we had that technical Thank glitch, you. but um, <laughs> there is an interesting, there's subcultures and I've gotten to know a lot of the people in the Bigfoot or, or the, I'm sorry, the dog man field, like mm-hmm. the Cundiff. And of course I've known Linda Godfrey for years, yes. Josh Turner in Austin. Um, 
there seems to be by a lot of dogman researchers an inclination to try and connect it to Bigfoot for some reason. Not that it is Bigfoot because they all swear it's something completely different, right. but that it interacts with Bigfoot. Either it has a territory like, like an LBL land of the lakes, mm-hmm. land between the lakes, Tennessee, right. Kentucky. Okay. The, the dogman lives on the North side and the Bigfoot on the South, yes. or they, they fight over territory. And it's like, to me, that's just an interesting, it's kind of a kind of getting off on another tangent here, but, it's fascinating to me that the dogman researchers are, for whatever reason, feel this inclination to constantly bring up Bigfoot and connect it to the dogman phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. I just I'm just going to throw that out there for what it is. I mean, it's <laughs> an it's, observation. It is, and and you know, I've I've talked to um, staunch Bigfoot believers that I mean, they just they tie it to Bigfoot because they don't want dogman to exist. Um, and then yeah. I've talked to others who. Uh, they really do believe that there are, you know, dogmen and were hyenas or like hyenas mm-hmm. hissing critters, and I mean all all kinds of different things. Uh, the rougarou, you know, all kinds of different things that there are stories all over of snouted beings. So true. I mean, it's it's all and all over the world, not just here. But how come we never really heard about dogman here in North America much until you know starting in the eighties and nineties? I mean, unlike Bigfoot, when you can find all of these, you know, older stories and accounts, Mm -hmm. newspaper articles, Native American legends. Right. I don't know. To to me, it seems like something that's that's more supernatural. But you're right. I mean, it's um, it's it's a definitely a conundrum. It's all speculation until we. It's all speculation, but I am (laughs) I am open minded to things that are even far out. Yes. And weird and beyond our under our understanding. So. Yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on so much. Um, Everyone, if I did not get to your questions from the chat, if you will post it in the comments below, we'll make sure that we get that answered. Um, Ken, thank you so much for coming on tonight. I'm honored to have you on. You've been a great guest, uh, very educational and informative, as I knew you would be. Um, And I appreciate you sitting with me through the technical glitches. I told you it's Murphy's Law. It never (laughs) fails. It never fails. Uh, No problem, Lauren. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I'm I'm glad we had a chance to chat. And um, I hope thank you to everyone out there who is listening. And I I hope everyone is is staying safe and feeling well and, um, you know, uh, hanging in there. We're all in this together. So it's it's cool that we have little get togethers like this where we can kind of interact and Absolutely. Share, share our uh, opinions. Absolutely. It makes it all feel a lot less lonely. Um, it's yeah. safe. And y'all, 2020 is almost over. Okay, so let's just hang Woo! on. <laughs> <laughs> We're almost we don't know there. What, we don't know what 2021 is bringing, but 2020 is almost over. So. Couldn't but be any you, worse. Yeah. I don't think. Thank you so much for coming on tonight, Ken. <laughs> Thanks, Lauren. We'll talk again soon. All right. Good night. Take care. Bye. Okay. I wanted to talk real quick about our next guest. Um, Next up, we have Cliff Barackman coming on on December 6th, uh, same time, same bat channel, everybody. And so we are going to chat with him about um, his time on finding Bigfoot, um, along with, you know, his efforts as a researcher, his different ventures and new projects that he has coming up. Um, He's a very informative, very educational guest, and so we're going to have him on next time. I can't wait to pick his little brain about every single thing that he has covered over the last, you know, however long that he's been doing this. I mean, he's been in the game a long time as well. So thank you, everyone, for tuning into the show. I hope you all enjoyed it. Please drop a comment and let me know what you thought of the show, as well as who you would like to see me interview in the future. Don't forget to check out the NCBR social media sites, as I mentioned earlier, for extra content and information on upcoming shows. You guys stay safe, stay open-minded, and be kind to one another. I will see y'all next time. Good night.